Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Thank you, Josiah. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, Thanks for being here. Uh, Very glad that you're here this morning. If this is your first time, my name is Garrison and one of the pastors here at uh, Veritas Dayton. Glad that you're here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah 6. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be uh, a white or blue paperback Bible at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those, turn to page 228. That will get you to Nehemiah 6. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Uh, Nehemiah, it's hard to find. Uh, I know it, it's not a, a book that uh, many are very familiar with. It's before the Psalms, uh, before Job, uh, after um, Ezra, uh, after First and Second Chronicles. If that kind of gets you in, in the ballpark, hopefully that'll help you find the book um, of Nehemiah. Uh, you received a bulletin when you walked in this morning. Inside that bulletin, there's a connect card. There is a connect card and, and sermon notes and all that stuff, but that connect card is what I want to talk to you about right now. Um, the connect card is just a good way for us to, to get to know a little bit about you and, and, um, and in order for us to uh, potentially get in contact with you and, and get to know you a little bit, maybe grab some coffee together, answer any questions that you may have about our community, and, and uh, hopefully, Lord willing, get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to be able to get uh, in contact with you uh, if you would be willing to fill that out. There's also a space for prayer requests. We'd love to be able to pray for you. Take a few moments, jot a few prayer requests down, turn that into myself or that bucket in the back or the black box on the welcome table or any of the leaders that you've seen up here this morning, uh, and we'll make sure to get in contact with you and be in prayer for you. Uh, So thank you for doing that. All right, Nehemiah 6, if you want to stand with me, if you're ready for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Nehemiah 6, the entire chapter, Nehemiah writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words. Now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Samballot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to those reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mehetabel, 
who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambal had hired him. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father... May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I have a, a, there's a fly up here. I have a category of books on my reading list that I call books that I should have read that I haven't read yet. Um, There's many books on there that should make me ashamed Books like Moby Dick or Plato's Republic. Um, up until recently, the Iliad, the Odyssey were on it. And, and to my shame, uh, up until recently, uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress was on that list. Um, we've been reading it together as a family. It's been very good. Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress is an allegorical tale, uh, meaning that it's a fictional story wherein uh, every scene is symbolic of some sort of hidden meaning. That's what an allegory is. It's an allegorical tale about a pilgrim named Christian who's on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. I'll let you figure that out. Uh, earlier in the story, he, he carries a huge burden on his back that he's desperate to get rid of. And thankfully, he meets a man named Evangelist who tells him how he can get rid of his burden. And this sets him on this journey where he goes uh, through the wicket gate to get to uh, the place of deliverance. And at the place of deliverance, there's this cross on this mountain. And, um, and Pilgrim looks at the cross and the burden rolls off of his back. The straps break and the burden rolls off of his back. It's a powerful, moving scene. And from there, he sets out on uh, the narrow road. And uh, while he's on the narrow road, he meets all sorts of of men and women, uh, all sorts of of people on the way, people like faithful and people like hopeful, uh, friends who help him on his journey. But he also meets those who seek to dissuade him, like fearful and money love and vanity fair. Well, one such friend that he meets on the way is an interpreter. Christian goes to the house of the interpreter, and interpreter takes Christian through all of these rooms in his house and, and, uh, and to, to help Christian to teach him certain spiritual realities, to help him discern certain things, to teach him to understand certain things in, in this life that he's living, in this pilgrim journey that he's on. 
he shows him uh, the, this, he takes him to this room with this painting, and it's the portrait of a godly pastor. Uh, he shows him the distinction between the law and the gospel. He shows him the difference between the virtue of patience and the vice of passion. And at one point, interpreter takes Christian to a room with a fireplace. And there's a, a, a fire in the fireplace. And while the fire burns, there's someone in the room who's constantly putting water on the fire to try to put it out. But instead of being put out, the fire just continues to burn hotter and higher. When Christian expresses his confusion, interpreter says to him, the fire is the work of God's grace. He he tells them how how to interpret this, this allegory. He says, the fire is the work of God's grace. He who casts water upon it so as to extinguish the blaze is the devil. Even so, in that you see the fire burn higher and hotter. Well, this is certainly what we've been seeing as we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah the last several weeks. If I had to put a title on chapters 2 through 6 of Nehemiah, it would be opposition or uh, potentially hostility. Um, We've seen Satan, the the capital E enemy of uh, God's people, raise up various enemies in the surrounding nations to try to put a stop to this God-ordained work of the people of God. And uh, we've seen the the tactics of the enemy grow uh, in intensity. Uh, They've continued to escalate. There's sort of escalating opposition going on in these chapters here. And we see the last of it uh, in this particular uh, chapter. This this is the the end of this particular section of Nehemiah, the section of opposition. Uh, And the tactics have grown in intensity. They've escalated. But they've not only grown in intensity... This morning in chapter 6, we see that their tactics also grow in ingenuity. Okay, these enemies are increasingly sly and clever and deceptive. But what we're also going to see this morning is that despite the intense and deceptive tactics of the enemies of the people of God, we also see this fire burn hotter and higher. Indeed, we even see the completion of the work on the wall this morning. Their work to rebuild the wall comes to its completion. The work to reestablish the city of God comes to its completion. And we should note, we will note, that this didn't take place because of the people's or Nehemiah's abilities or wisdom. You know, uh, it it didn't happen because Nehemiah was a skillful leader. He didn't have all these uh, sweet leadership skills. He hadn't read Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person. It hadn't come out yet. Uh, No, this work is completed Because God was present to help his people. They completed the work with the help of our God. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. Despite the deceptive tactics of the enemy, the work is completed with the help of our God. Look with me at, first, the deceptive tactics of the enemy. Second, the completion of the work. And third, the help of our God. First, the deceptive tactics of the enemy. Uh, this morning, our text picks back up in this work on the wall. So chapter 5 took uh, a bit of a, a little detour to reveal some of the internal problems going on in the community to give us an example of Nehemiah's generosity and, and how they were a community that helped the poor and, and took care of the poor uh, and, and sought to do justice on behalf of those who were oppressed. But now we see the, the work on the wall resume. And uh, not only the work on the wall, but we also see uh, the outside opposition resume. We've seen this opposition on several different occasions. And at this point, it's continuing to escalate. It's continuing to grow in sophistication. It's continuing to grow in uh, deception. The enemies of the work, they're going to stop at nothing to interrupt the work and mission of the people of God. 
They take the tactics of deception and conspiracy. They accuse Nehemiah. They start rumors and try to get him into hiding to do violence against him. They even tried to deceive him into committing sin against the Lord. And we'll start by looking verse, uh, first at verses 1 through 4. Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambal and Geshem came to me saying, or sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them, answered them in the same manner. You see, when the enemies of God's people saw that the work was virtually finished, the enemies of the people of God, they were desperately trying to put a halt to the work in any way that they could. And so two of them, Samballat and Geshem, sent for Nehemiah to come and meet them in the plain of Ono. To which Nehemiah responds, oh no. Why? Because they were trying, <laughs> why? Because they were trying to get him out of the city and away from the people who would fight with and for Nehemiah should he be in, uh, attacked. And uh, they were trying to get Nehemiah alone and isolated so that they could surround him and attack him. But wisely, uh, Nehemiah refuses to be fooled. And uh, we, we should learn from this because one of the deceptive tactics of the enemy is to try to isolate the people of God so that, so that we're more vulnerable to his attacks and so that he can more easily harm us. You know, I've seen this time and time again. There's, there's strength in numbers when it comes to, to linking arms with those in a local church and following Jesus together. I've seen it time and time again where believers isolate themselves from the people of God, where they separate themselves from the community of faith, where they disconnect from the local church. You know, I don't, I don't need to be a part of a church to be a Christian. The church slows me down. I can be more effective for the kingdom of God if, if, if I'm by myself. Or, right? the, the, the church just, they're, they're so old-fashioned. Things get done so slow in the church. I, we we, we got we to gotta get to work, and I, I'm fine without the church. Well, that's, that's the work of the enemy. Don't be fooled in isolating yourself from the people of God. You're being deceived by the enemy and making yourself vulnerable to his attacks. Dismiss such deception like Nehemiah does here. Now, unfortunately, the enemies continue in their attempts at this deception. They tried to trick Nehemiah in this way four times, and when he wasn't fooled, they took a different tactic the fifth time. Uh, We'll pick it back up in verse 5. In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you've also set up prophets to proclaim you concerning, concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, he's going to hear of these reports. Now come, come now and, and let us take counsel together. I'm trying to help you, friend. This, and then I sent to him, Nehemiah says, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they, want, they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. Now, this is really nasty. This is dirty. This is nasty. This is deceptive. Uh, when Nehemiah is not dissuaded in their first four attempts, they get dirty here. They send an open letter with false at- rumors and accusations that Nehemiah and the people uh, t- are going to rebel against the, the Persian Empire. Uh, typically, uh, such a letter uh, that, that Sam Ballot had sent, such a letter would have been sealed uh, with a little wax stamp so that no one could read it. 
but this is an open letter, meaning that the deliverer of the letter uh, would have been able to read the contents out loud to the people that he met along the, the path and the road on the way to the city in front of all the people in the city. And the rumors being spread were, were such that could have put Nehemiah's life in danger and, and many of the people's lives in the city in danger. If Nehemiah were going to be set, was going to be setting himself up as a king and the people were intending to rebel, that would have been treason against King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah's head would have gotten lopped off. The, 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 most certainly, the, the Persian army would have attacked the city of Jerusalem if this was the case. And so Sam Ballot says, this is, this is what we're hearing, friend. Why don't you come? Let's talk about it. I want to help you. I'm on your side. Let's, uh, I'm trying to protect you here. I want to make sure these rumors don't get out there, friend. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. But when Nehemiah is not dissuaded, they tried another way. It says, now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sambal had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. From what we read here, we can discern that Shemaiah is a prophet in Jerusalem, okay? His role in the people of God is, is to speak on God's behalf, to guide the people of God according to God's word. Uh, similar to, uh, you know, like a modern-day pastor would be called to help God's people learn and obey God's word. Uh, but here we see something is terribly wrong. The prophet Shemaiah has been paid by Samballot and Tobiah to prophesy falsely to Nehemiah. He tells Nehemiah to go into hiding, and not just to go into a hiding, and not just to any place, but to go into hiding in the inner courts of the temple. Now remember here, Nehemiah, we talked about this the first Sunday of the series, Nehemiah is a layman. He's not clergy. He's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He can't go into the inner courts of the temple. This would be a direct violation of the word of God. And yet here's a trusted prophet, a a trusted pastor telling Nehemiah to do just that. Here's another dirty and deceptive tactic of the enemy. And again, we should learn from this. You know, you, you could find ordained pastors in this city that will tell you God's will for your life is to be rich if you just have enough faith. You know, you, you can find ordained pastors in this city that will tell you uh, that, that while the Bible is partly true, you can't believe everything it says about things supernatural or, or about what it says about ethics and, and, and morality. You can find pastors that will tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just a myth. You can find pastors that will tell you that uh, faith is not enough to reconcile to you, you to God, but you need faith and works in order to really be forgiven. You can find pastors that will tell you through a happy smile on a trustworthy face with white, nice teeth to tell you that God wants you to live your best life now. You can find pastors that tell you all sorts of false things. Don't believe them. This is a sly, clever, and deceptive tactic of the enemy to trick God's people into being led astray. And still, that's not the last of it. Look at verses 17 and 19. Moreover, in in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Aaron. His son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. 
So they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Remember who Tobiah is. He's got a Jewish name. His name means Yahweh is good. It's probably some sort of nominal follower of Yahweh. And he's a, a powerful official in Ammon, a region close to Judah. He's closely connected with many in the community through ver- various familial and business ties. And Tobiah is leveraging these relationships to, to try to get to Nehemiah. Those officials in Jerusalem connected with Tobiah are speaking well of him to Nehemiah. And then they're also reporting to Tobiah what Nehemiah is saying and doing in the city. And it's a complicated web of opposition. It's difficult to untangle. Tobiah is using this, this, he's leveraging his, his position to strike fear in the heart of Nehemiah, to try to strike fear in the heart of Nehemiah. These are the deceptive tactics of Sambal and Tobiah and the surrounding nations to try to put a halt to the mission of God in the city of God. But as we've already, as we've already discussed in sermons in the past about opposition to the mission of God, we, we know that these enemies are really pawns in the hand of the enemy, the capital E, enemy. Ephesians 6.12 says as much. It says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood as Christians, but we wrestle against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, we don't wrestle against our fellow human beings, but against Satan and demons and spiritual darkness. Why? Because Satan and demons and spiritual darkness are the unseen cause of the church's opposition in the world. We must remember this. We must remember this. It's especially important that we remember this in in, in time and place in which we live. You know, we live in a time where we believe that everything has a, a sort of natural explanation. We assume that everything has a natural explanation. We just assume that there are no invisible spiritual forces at work in this world. But the worldview that the Bible presents to us is entirely different. You know, the Bible reveals to us that we live in a cosmos where things are, there are invisible things, invisible things going on. There's spiritual and, and, and things spiritual and things visible. There are uh, uh, these, these physical things, these, uh, these visible things, and invisible spiritual realities that work behind them. The worldview that the Bible presents to us is one in which things are going on in this world that we might not see. There are invisible and spiritual realities as well as visible and physical realities that we see. And, you know, I'm not even talking about, you know, extraordinary events like the exorcist or something. You know, Satan and demons are at work when there's divisiveness in the Christian community. It may look ordinary. You you may be able to find sort of natural explanations for it, but make no mistake, Satan and demons are behind such divisiveness. He's at work when gossip and rumors go on in the church and when gossip and rumors are spread about the people of God. He's at work when the people of God fall into materialism and greed but simply write it off as being wise and well-prepared for the future. He's, He's at work distracting Christians with the American dream. He's at work in deceiving Christians and tempting Christians and calling us into sinful practices and lives and and habits. He's at work in this sort of ordinary, everyday opposition that the people of God face while it's doing the work of God. And in fact, that's, that's part of what makes his tactics so deceptive. You know, we live in, in a, a time, Charles Taylor, this uh, Canadian philosopher, says we live in a time where there's an imminent frame. We, we believe that, we, we just assume that we are not vulnerable to spiritual, invisible forces at work in the world. 
But, but this is exactly what Satan would have us think and demons would have us think. They would love to have us think that they're not presently opposing us in the mission of the people of God. Now, C.S. Lewis once spoke to this in his book, Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in, into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, Satan and demons are very pleased when we're not aware of them at all. And they're very pleased if we think about them too much as well. You know, but, but if I had to make an assessment about uh, our particular kind of culture here and, 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 and our uh, church culture as well, our sort of local church culture that we have here, if I had to make an assessment about where we could be tempted to fall on either side of those categories, those extremes, it would most certainly be the materialist. I assume that you agree with me on that. Never suspecting Satan and demons at work, never discerning their hidden and ordinary opposition to the work of God. We so easily forget that we have a real, invisible, spiritual enemy, that Satan and demons are real and that they hate the work of God and that they hate the people of God in the world and that they will do anything to thwart the work in the people of God. And so we, as New Covenant believers, would do well to consider Nehemiah's character and conduct here as we meet with various deceptive tactics of the enemy. We see some good lessons from Nehemiah, and we'll go through them really quickly because we're running out of time. Notice two aspects of Nehemiah's conduct here. First, notice the way that Nehemiah is on guard. You know, he discerns the tactics of the enemy whenever they come. He's alert, he's vigilant, he's watchful. We read 1 Peter 5.8 earlier where, where Peter calls us to mimic his behavior. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember that you have an enemy. Satan and demons hate God and therefore they hate you and they will do anything to thwart God's mission and work in the world. Be on guard. A second, notice the way that Nehemiah is prayerful through the onslaught of these enemies' tactics. Verse 9, he prays, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. In verse 14, he prays, Remember to buy it in Samballot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You know, Nehemiah is dependent on the Lord to fight his battles. He's dependent on the Lord to give him strength. He's dependent on the Lord to bring justice into the situation. Nehemiah relies on the Lord in prayer. Nehemiah knows that he can't win these battles by himself. He needs the Lord to fight on his behalf. You know, guys, we're seeking to do the work of the Lord. We're seeking to be obedient to God's mission here. You know, we're seeking to obey the Great Commission. That's the work of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's our mission as a church, to make disciples, to help people follow Jesus. Satan hates that. We've met with opposition in the past two years, and we will continue to meet with opposition. And therefore, we must be on guard and be in prayer. But whatever opposition we will meet, we can bank on the reality that God's work in the world will be completed. Next, we see the completion of the work. We see this reality in in verses 15 to 16. Look at what Nehemiah says. He says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. 
when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. So the enemies who are trying to make Nehemiah and the people of God afraid end up being afraid themselves because the work is completed. The wall was built in 52 days. And you know, this, this must uh, take uh, into account uh, not, not the time, um, this must be considering just the time spent working directly on the wall, not taking it into account the, the sort of planning and preparations that took place before because it was finished in the month of Elul, which is six months after Nehemiah originally spoke to the king in chapter 2. But still, this is a remarkable feat. 52 days, and the wall has been rebuilt, and the rubble, it was absolute rubble. And it's been cleaned up and, and rebuilt. You know, at, at first, it seemed not just unlikely, but impossible. And yet, here it is, completed and rebuilt. The work is finished. And it reminds me of, of uh, what missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said. The quote is in your bulletin. There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. Then it's done. And of course, you know, the, the mission of the church is no different. 2,000 years ago, we just talked about the Great Commission. 2,000 years ago, Christ gave the church this, this bumbling band of 11 disciples, his global Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. There's 11 of them there, and they're pathetic. Like, it, it would have been easy to think, this is impossible. You know, these uneducated fishermen... Some on different ends of the political spectrum. We've got liberals and conservatives here. Peter being the leader of the bunch, who's a disaster, denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And they just lost the treasurer of the bunch because he, he betrayed Jesus for 40 pieces of silver. They're all from this powerless and marginalized people group in the Roman Empire. There's no way this mission is going to move forward in the world. And yet 2,000 years later, here we are, the the gospel has has spread all over the world. People from many different nations and tribes and tongues have come to believe in Jesus. Christianity is exploding in the global south, all over South America and Africa and Asia. It no longer seems impossible, does it? Still, it's difficult. Still a lot of work to do. We have over 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. And even more who are only kind of uh, superficially or minimally reached. Christianity also seems to be on decline in the the Western world, including the U.S. There's still plenty of work to do, and it's not easy to do. In many parts of the world, Christians are persecuted and marginalized. We just prayed about that earlier. In many parts of the world, Christians are, are imprisoned and killed for their faith. In many parts of the world that remain unreached, they don't want Christian missionaries to come. It's difficult. But here's a promise that we can remember in order to cling to and grow in confidence. One day it will be done. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 describes for us this heavenly scene wherein we see this great commission to make disciples of all nations completed, finished, done. In it there's a a great multitude from every nation, a great multitude that no one could number, a great nation with people all different skin colors, all different languages, people standing before Jesus Christ and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Countless people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who find their deepest rest, their deepest peace, their deepest joy, their deepest happiness in the infinitely worthy Lamb of God. And so that vision drives us to continue and persevere now. We can be confident it's going to be finished. It's going to be finished because of the help of our God, which is our last point. 
At the end of verse 16, Nehemiah sneaks in a little theological bomb that lets us know why this work on the wall was completed in the first place. It says, when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Work was accomplished with the help of our God. Remember, God was the one who laid this burden on Nehemiah's heart. God was the one who orchestrated the return of the people to the city of God. God was the one who led King Artaxerxes, this pagan king who hated God's people, who put a stop to the work of the rebuilding of the city in the first place and decreed that it would not be done. He led Artaxerxes to reverse his decree, something kings don't do, and to allow the people to rebuild. God was the one who rallied the people. God was the one who sustained the people's strength. God was the one who gave his people the wisdom and strength to persevere through this opposition. They completed the help with the work of God. God is always present with his people to help us obey and fulfill the the work of his mission. Just said the Great Commission. We'll say it again. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age In other words, as you go about this mission of making disciples, as you go about this work, it's actually Jesus present with you, working through you by his spirit to do his work. It's his mission. And it is therefore his work that he does through his people. He's in union and communion with his people. He's always present, living in his people by his spirit to do this work. And because it is his work, and because he's with his people to do it, we can be confident that despite whatever opposition the work may face, it will be completed. He will keep the fire burning. You know, earlier when we followed Christian, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian into the house of the interpreter, we didn't explain why the fire never went out. You know, Christian was obviously confused as to why the fire wouldn't go out, even though Satan was continuing to put water on it. And not only that, but the fire only grew hotter and higher as the water was poured on it. So, so Christian asks the interpreter, what's, what's happening here? Interpreter tells Christian, as we already said, the fire is the work of God's grace. He who casts water upon it so as to extinguish this blaze is the devil. Even so, in that you see the, the fire burn higher and hotter. And then interpreter tells Christian, let me show you the reason for this mystery. So interpreter takes Christian behind the wall in the fireplace there on the other side of the wall, still the the same fire. And there Christian sees a man with a container filled with oil in his hand. And he's constantly casting oil on the fire. And so Christian asks the interpreter, "What, what, what does this mean? And interpreter replies, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun By this means, notwithstanding what the devil attempts to do, the work of God's grace continues on. Despite the deceptive tactics of the enemy, the work continues on with the help of our God. Veritas, this is what we're called to. We're called to continue in this work, but recognize that it's not us continuing it, not really. This is the work of God's grace. This is the work of Christ pouring oil on the fire. And the fire, as opposition comes, only burns higher and only burns hotter. So Veritas, may we be on guard. May we be in prayer. May we join God in the work that he's doing in the world. 
And may we trust that with his help, it will most certainly be completed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are the mighty God, the infinitely worthy, infinitely powerful, infinitely sovereign God. The God of whom we are not even worthy to know and to be called by your name, yet in Christ you call us your children and you fill us with your spirit who cries out within us, Abba, Father, and you include us in your work and your mission in the world. Lord, what, what, what a wonderful reality. We thank you for this reality. Lord, but we also recognize that there is an enemy, that there are enemies to the work. So would you help us to be on guard? Would you help us to be in prayer? Would you help us to, to be watchful? Would you help us to always be dependent upon you? Because we know that as we're about to be sent out for another week of being disciples in the world, representing Jesus in the world, representing the kingdom of God in the world, that we will meet with opposition. Would you help us to be mindful of the reality that you are with us through your son, in your spirit, and that the work will continue on because of that reality. And would you help us to keep our eyes on this most certain hope that we have because the promise of Jesus that he's going to one day return, would you help us to cling to this, that the work will one day be completed and finished and on that day we will gather with all the people of God throughout time and space, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship you, to enjoy you forever. We look forward to that day. We desire it with all of our hearts. Would you stir up that desire within us to increase hope within us and to strengthen our hands for the work now. In Jesus' name, amen.